Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 21st of the 2nd, or nearly the entirety of the way through February. Michael, how have you been? I'm fine, Gary, just enjoying the weather. It's uh, it's just it's a reminder that it would be a lovely little country if only you could roof it. Anyway, to start off uh, with a weekly overview, I've done a little bit of stuff in PR, and I, I quite like crisis PR, Michael, which is where something has just gone to the fucking wall, and you need to step in and show someone the best way of getting through it. And often the best way to get through it is to just totally go dark. The ages when no comment was a horrible slight on your character are over. Just don't move, and eventually they'll get distracted and walk away. And then you can go back to whatever you were doing before. But Mary Robinson, Mary Robinson has put on a bit of a masterclass in this, Michael. Maybe inadvertently, but it's Mary Robinson, so I don't think so. So Robinson was having all of this trouble with, uh, you know, her ability to not discern certain things about a kidnapped princess while still being astute enough to discern that that princess was suffering from, you know, deeply held mental problems. Okay. Uh, but that's a, well, that was a bit of a problem for Mary, because it seemed, Michael, like people didn't really believe that Mary Robinson would be that easy to fool, or that easy to trick. And so this was a bit of a problem, because Mary Robinson's only skill is Mary Robinson's reputation and ability to know people. So what Mary Robinson has done is Mary Robinson has hit out at the lack of dignity shown to mother and baby home survivors, Michael. Now, that had the wonderful side effect that if you Google Mary Robinson news, it's not all about, you know, princesses and Dubai and isn't actually this situation a bit weird? And maybe I'll go back to when the situation arose and see what Mary Robinson said about it then. And does that seem believable? And now it's just... Mary Robinson talks about terrible thing and why it shouldn't be terrible. It's almost like you're saying that by doing this, she's changing, she's changing the 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 research results for somebody on Google by uh, throwing in some chum into the water to confuse the issue. I would never suggest such a thing, Michael. Well, I'm glad we've clarified that you weren't saying that because I think somebody somebody might have understood that. But had she wanted to do that, this would. You know, it would have looked virtually indistinguishable. Right. That's a problem sometimes. I mean, we can't tell intent, Michael, and who are we to besmirch Mary Robinson's um, near reputation? And Michael, you know, she she had appeared to be a very competent woman, but as we've recently you know, found out, I think all of us, she's very easy to confuse. So I don't <laughs> think she could have planned something of this intricacy. I am um, I'm going to say... I didn't vote for Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson's politics are different to mine. Um, she may have made a misstep in this case. She uh, believed this young lady was suffering from some kind of mental uh, illness and was now in the bosom of her down in the bosom of her family, and that was where she was best to be and it has now transpired that that may not have been the case yeah, and i mean when they brought mary robinson there and she had a photograph with that princess at the time so that everyone would see the princess was safe and she was asked why she didn't you know ask the princess where you know what were you doing and you know are you currently being imprisoned here against your will and, you know, when she said, Michael, that she didn't want to do that because it was, uh, you know, she thought that girl had been under a lot of stress and they were having a really lovely lunch. I'm sure in Mary Robinson's wide career in law and politics, Michael, the one thing that is really you know, burrowed into her mind is don't ask questions ever. <laughs> Just assume. And then when she said oh, the photos of her with the princess, she had thought they were just for for personal use or for private use. And I feel, you know, if I was having lunch with someone and there was a photographer, I would question why that photographer was there. And even if it was not a formal photographer with perhaps a press hat, and it was just someone, you know, photographing me, I might ask, why is this happening? Why am I here, actually? Is this situation not a bit odd? But as I said, Michael, she's very old now and apparently very easily confused. So I think, you know, we can't hold these things against her. You said that you, you, you as a lawyer, you don't ask questions. Of course, the things that all lawyers are told 
and certainly barristers, one of the old cliched rules of uh, examination, cross-examination, is you never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Oh, but I will ask a question I don't know the answer to, Michael, right now. When Mary Robinson went to meet the princess, who paid for her flights there? Well, Gary, you and me are in the bo- same boat then, because strangely, Mary has not communicated that information to me. I did try and go and actually look at the accounts of her uh, Mary Robinson's Foundation for Climate Justice, I think was the name. Michael, tragically, the, the foundation was liquidated relatively shortly thereafter. Oh, I know. That's a pity. It is a pity. She probably had other projects and it was taking too much of her time and administration, that kind of a... When you're, you're a globe hawk, yeah, international personality in the human rights business, you know, it's hard to be home and to be minding the shop. Absolutely. And I mean, she, you know, I, I went through the liquidation documents and she had the liquidation, uh, anything left over from that. She had that sent on to Trinity anyway. So there could be... Uh, there could be no link there. Although it was actually a good year for Trinity because I think one of the members of the royal family of Dubai, about six months after Mary went over there, did buy them a building. Well, every year is a good year for Trinity. Not if you look at their academic rankings. Well, you know, they're the highest in Ireland. I think they are the highest in Ireland. Yes, they are still. Which is very impressive when you're in Ireland and once you get outside of it, realise not terribly much elsewhere. Trinity, by the way, it's nothing to do with anything. I see have launched... Uh, they're launching a program to investigate their uh, connections with uh, colonialism and empire in rela- in reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement to try and get to the heart of the issues of the connections that Trinity may have historically had. So maybe one or two bad days coming up for Trinity. Who knows? Well, you know, Michael, if there are, all we can say is they did it to themselves. And it's always the best person to do it. In other news, less less freewheeling, flying around the world and uh, seeing princesses in Dubai news, Michael. The passport service has uh, effectively stopped working now. Nearly all its functions have stopped due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which is kind of funny because it means if your passport was out of date, the country is now effectively a prison. Yeah, actually, my passport is out of date. So that's a, that's a bit of a worry if I want to make a dash for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that'll be helpful when we all try and go over the uh, border to the north to buy their excess vaccines. Maybe they'll give them away. Or maybe we can stand on one side of the border and they'll throw them over. I I heard this news and it's it's at its core, it's just a bureaucratic matter. It also just seemed to me like it, this is going to make a really interesting legal case very soon. Like, does this not strike you as someone will try and leave the country and won't be allowed to and that person will bring a court case? Why is this? I mean, presumably, I can understand that they're working uh, at their distance working at the moment and therefore they're mostly probably working at home. But why can't they continue to work at home? What's the what's the specific problem or issue with COVID that stops that happening? So the passport office have said that, um, yes, their staff are working primarily from home. But if they want to process the application, they have to go into the building because they do not allow staff to have access to personal data when working outside of the offices. And so they cannot process the passport applications at all. This, I think, would be one of the busiest times for the passport normally. Yeah, well, it's not normally, is it? No, no, no. You can still get the same day one they do for emergencies. So if you're traveling abroad due to bereavement or illness or for medical treatment. But I'm pretty sure this will end up in the courts. You know, you, didn't, you wouldn't actually have to go to the north to get vaccinated, would you? If they did it right, you could stand on one side of the border and just lean over with your arm and they could vaccinate you. And your arm would be in the north, but you'd be in the south. It'd be okay. You could do that. I think they call that the all-Ireland approach. <laughs> in another eight, nine weeks, the passport should be back. And then, of course, they'll have the backlog. So it could be another eight weeks. A cynical person, Michael might suggest that there, you know, there may be some ulterior motive here. Are you saying that there's some kind of great black plot in order to stop people going to Tenerife to get their dental work done by making sure that most of the population that doesn't have, in fact, any section of the population that's been foolish enough as I have not to notice their passport and gone out of date won't be able to go because they won't be able to get a passport? Because I, 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 that kind of level of cleverness, Machiavellian thinking, seems to me to be beyond 
the capacities of this government. I know, I would never call it such, and only partially because I've never seen a black civil servant, but... Okay. Well, you said black plot. (laughs) Oh, God, out with a lamp you go looking for it, don't you? The listeners aren't going to enjoy the, the, the long silence there, because I will cut it out for the purpose of that podcast, but there was a good five to ten seconds of just silence. You know, I, I'm always reminded of the constant concern of the people standing, whoever it was, beside Stalin or Churchill at, 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 on the podium. The worry that whoever the assassin is, whoever the sniper is, that he maybe isn't quite up to snuff you know, because I'm always worried, Gary, when they come for you, they may miss and hit me instead. Well, I feel terribly sad about that, Michael, if it happens. Yeah, I'm sure. You send flowers. Well, flower, maybe. Maybe a gift basket. Muffins. People always like muffins when they're bereaved. Anyway, it's just a minor thing, I think, unless you want to leave the country. In which case, no, it's not a minor thing. And Enjoy the, the very large prison you're now in. But, uh, I, no, I, I, I'm sure. This, this strikes me as exactly the sort of thing. Someone will bring a case and claim that it is a breach of their constitutional rights. How long would it take to row to Italy? Um, whew, I have no idea because I've never had to even consider that uh, situation. I'm sure you can do it quite quickly if uh, safety fallback options were not high on your priority list. I don't know. Still, there's always a chance you get picked up in the Mediterranean by one of those nice NGO ships and, drop, and dropped off on some Italian island. So you wouldn't actually have to get all the way to Italy. Just close enough to find some bunch of... Uh, sort of anti-Italian government asylum refugee supporting peoples. Get them to pick you up, drop you off in Lampedusa or somewhere. Still, I'd prefer to fly on balance. Moving from that, Michael, to a story of justice. The appropriate justice being meted out to those flaunting it all around the place. Uh, what, are we talking about the Kardashians and the Kanye West divorce case? What, what are we talking about? This case of a, a, a couple... In the Wicklow Mountains. Oh, the very wicked couple, yes. So they, there's a video of them rescuing a dog from the mountains. And it was all wonderful and it was all great. And then, Michael, someone made the very important point. These people were up the mountains in Wicklow. Yes. They weren't within five kilometres or maybe you know, maybe they were, but it didn't look like they were. And reported them to the guardie. And the general response to this has been, that's terrible, how could you do that? Whereas my response has been, exactly that's what you need to do. <laughs> and when I learned about the situation, the wider situation, Michael, if anything, I just became more certain that these people should have been reported. So they were staying in a place called the Elbow Room Escape Lodge in Wicklow. Now, Elbow Room Escape Lodge had uh, put up Instagram posts saying that they would offer mental health breaks to frontline workers. Yes. And, uh, you know, if you needed a rest. And that they would provide a letter to you uh, allowing you to travel for the essential reason of protection against psychological mental health injuries. And that lodge has now had to close its doors to frontline workers. To which I say again, absolutely. Because, Michael, I take the approach to the pandemic that if I can't do it, you don't get to do it. And I don't care if they're frontline workers. They don't get to have fun and they don't get to go on holiday. Yeah, they were both doctors, we should point out. I don't know if we'd mentioned that. They were both doctors. Um, now, I, I, it's worth observing that the the the, uh, the male doctor has what looks very like a foreign name. So, therefore, it's deserving of far less sympathy. And she has an Irish name, and she's with a, she's with a foreigner. So, you know, what's going on there? There's obviously something, you know, that's just not good enough. So, yes, two doctors take a break uh, on offer uh, as a this mental health break and they went up a mountain and they went up a mountain and found a dog that had been lost for two weeks up the mountain he was as it was reported not fit to bark there's a wonderful photograph of the dog what appears to be in the inside the coat of one of the uh, one of the frontline worker heroes he's a, and you have to say gary the dog is the kind of dog that would be perfectly suited to be cast in a Disney family movie. Michael, that dog broke the law. Do not do this to him. <laughs> yes, because he was off a leash. He was off a leash in the Wicklow Mountains. Wasn't muzzled? Look, look at, not muzzled, no, no, no. Very big brown sad eyes, though. And uh, a member, 
it's the thing is the line we don't know obviously but a member is reported thusly a member of the public reported the couple for breaching non-essential travel rules now gary of course you are absolutely right you know these people flouting the flouting the rules going up a mountain you know what they could have caused uh, <laughs> some terrible terrible uh, outbreak scenario in the wicklow mountains they rescued this dog fine but this is the people we have become when you discover there are two doctors taking a break in a in in a lodge up the side of a, of the hills in Dunard, and they've gone walking up a mountain you hear about it the, the first thing this person thought was oh what are they doing there i bet they're from dublin they're outside their five kilometers i'm going to ring the guards now the guardi are it is reported making inquiries the lodge into the lodge's operations the lodge has now up has now announced that it's closed uh, it's closing its operation i remember when i was in college gary the dean uh in of junior house saying to us once if somebody comes to me with information about one of the students one of the students breaking the rules i will have to act on that information i won't have any choice he paused it but let nobody think that i will think more of the person who brought me that information and i can't imagine well maybe not but i, I can't imagine the guardy who got this particular call were sitting there thinking give that member of a public a gold medal for behaving in this responsible and civic minded fashion but that is the rules and that is where we are and as you say maybe this is this is the kind of thing we need to remind us of the kind of people that we are become and maybe and rather the kind of people that we should aspire to be but i i look at this the same way i look at those videos of gardy and things things dancing michael i don't get to do it you don't get to do it you can dance if you want uh, yeah and i can leave my friends behind and i would have to in this fucking case because if we came anywhere together we'd be arrested but they can't dance well, i can tell you if they can't dance they're no friends of mine that song worked a lot better when there weren't legal prohibitions on dancing gary the only advice i can give you is dance as if no one is watching have you seen the amount of surveillance cameras <laughs> i didn't know greystones was that heavily invested the 5k ruling is obviously kind of ridiculous but it also reflects two things about it one that i don't think people know and one is just it's really difficult to come up with a way to stop people from moving that can actually stop the cases from happening while also giving you freedom to do things that would really require something tailor-made and laws is too much of a blunt instrument to do that and i'm even the 5k thing is is legally all over the shop but um the problem here and i don't think people know this is that one of the reasons they went for the 5k limit is that the government were advised that they required it in order to keep the law against uh, the rent freezes and the uh, freeze on evictions in place and that if if they tried to bring those in without the 5k limit that there would just be a legal challenge and the entire thing would fall. What's the connection? Well, basically, those things would be likely unconstitutional on economic grounds. So if they were to say, well, no one has a job, therefore there's a rent freeze, unconstitutional. But if they say this is on health grounds and due to other limits that we have imposed, like the five kilometre limit, then the thinking is it's not. So be once that limit goes, Michael the the rest of it is expected to go as well so on one hand you sort of go okay that makes a bit of sense on the other hand you do sort of go god if only we knew someone who could change legislation yeah well i suppose the truth of it is you if, if you want to part of contr controlling infection is reducing activity and part of activity is people moving around and doing things and you whatever whatever distance you if if you're going to allow people out whatever distance you choose is going to really be arbitrary now the five kilometer lift i i know that uh maybe part of that would have been based on access to shops my 85 percent of people with it are live within five kilometers of a pharmacy so maybe that was came into it distances to large to supermarkets or to other large food outlets something but ultimately yeah it's it's it's, it's it is to, it's to a degree arbitrary but you're going to, if in the plan, the plan believes that it's necessary to stop 
people moving because you want to reduce activity of all kinds as much as you can. So we have the limit and even if you save a dog, if you're outside the limit, you've broken the rules and the rules should apply to everyone. That's the way the law works. But And I agree with it all that, but I just instinctively, I just don't like this, this notion that we've become these people. You know, I mean, it's an awful cliche, I know, twitching, you know, the twitching curtains and looking out and... Do you remember that case we saw a while ago? We talked about it briefly on the podcast. I think there was a video of, of police coming into somebody's apartment in Glasgow. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And it was turned out it was because a neighbour had reported them because the neighbour believed they had other people in the apartment, which turns out wasn't true. Their daughter had only just returned from hospital where she'd been very seriously ill. The woman lost her head. Now, you could say that she, if she'd been a little bit less emotive uh, and less emotional, uh, communicated better but the police I thought that would just rank and also the fact that they came into her house they didn't have a warrant they were responding on the basis of hearsay they had no actual evidence that there was anything going on but that's that kind of mentality I, I just don't like it I don't like it but how can you do we are where we are prosecute to the fullest extent of the law Michael <laughs> you're just made of chocolate and bunnies aren't you Rob? well here's here's the way I generally look at things Bad laws should be used as heavily as possible and in as many fringe and edge cases as possible. In a democracy, not in, not in a not-democracy, because then it just won't stop. But if a law is bad, show people why it's bad. Show them ridiculous cases to it and prosecute those cases. And, you know, then you might get some pressure to maybe make the bad law less bad. Such as, Michael, do you know at one time in this country it was illegal to shoot a traveller who had robbed you and was running away in the back. And then this country fixed that. Really? There was such a time? There was. I mean, it was a dark time, Michael. But, um, you know, and you can reload now, whereas before you couldn't. Which, for those people who only had maybe single-barreled, double-barreled shotguns, as opposed to, say, multi-shot pump action, that must have been a, that must have represented a problem. No more does the law privilege the wealthy owners of double-barrel shotguns over single shot. And it's all about equality, isn't it? And, you know, as I said, just because they're running away doesn't mean you can't shoot them, reload, and do it again, as Mr. Nally found out. And that is the law. It is now, anyway. It is now, anyway, yes, indeed. Anyway, moving along. Are you uncomfortable talking about the, uh, the Nally case? I, I feel like at the time I talked about it enough, even if not on this, and I thought the whole country talked about it enough. You know, if we're going to start excavating ancient stories of shootings and cruelties, I mean, are we going to end up in tithe wars and cattle being... Yes, it is a story of cruelty, but Nally got out and appealed, so, you know, they had a happy ending. For Nally, certainly. Who else was there? Oh, at that stage, nobody. Everyone else was fictitious by that stage, Michael. No, everybody else. Well, anyway, everyone else was ex. They had been, fact, and now they were fiction. Mostly because he shot them. I'm really, I'm not going to get into a discussion of, like, some kind of odd philosophical discussion of what the opposite of fact is. Or ex-fact, rather than fiction. It was a liminal state. It was a liminal... He passed through the liminal onto the other side of the liminal. Yeah. Well, the liminal state was the reload, I suppose. That was the reload, yes. So... (laughs) I don't know why I find that so funny. I'm sure the listeners are sitting wondering exactly the same thing. Well, no, possibly not. Possibly thinking it's absolutely par for the course. Yeah, no, I think they've they've gotten used to my uh, sense of humour by now. And my hardline stance on the law. The law, indeed. The great believer in the law. Unless it's inconvenient for me. Yeah, I put like, that's an Irish trait. We had a law about that, but it didn't catch on. Yeah. You want the law as hard as it can be in areas that you like. And then more of like a guideline in areas that, you know, you, you find constricting. And that's just Ireland. We could talk about European law, if you like, Gary. And for example, contract law. International law is not law. Yeah, but contract law contract law is law, Gary. And you can draw a contract up well or you can draw a contract up badly. And if you draw it up very badly, you may you might leave yourself over open for reasonable criticism. You might. And and people might pr- protest against that reasonable criticism, Michael, uh unfairly, like Stephen Collins in the Irish Times. 
Stephen Collins being a former political editor of the Irish Times, he wrote an article there saying that um, the outbreak of EU bashing amongst Irish politicians is a serious overaction. And it's it's a badly put together article, and it's badly argued, and it's uh, in places simply factually incorrect. But yeah, but there were uh, there were a couple of things that were interesting. His basic point is that Ireland is being too hard on the EU for the vaccine failures and the whole Article sixteen thing. And you know, don't we understand that everyone makes mistakes? And it's being noted in Europe that we're not showing uh, solidarity with the EU. Which, considering some of the things I've read in the German press from German politicians about the EU, strikes me as unlikely, because we're being relatively kind. I, I just wonder where where Stephen has been of late, because he says the sudden outbreak of European Union bashing amongst Irish politicians following the European Commission blunder on the Northern Ireland Protocol is a serious overreaction and threatens to damage with damaging consequences for the country's credibility in the years ahead. Now, for a start, I am I'm rather of the opinion that there hasn't that the the sudden outbreak it's sudden in the sense that it's late, very late in the day, and I, I haven't seen it as far as I'm concerned half enough of it. And our credibility, how how what credibility? What credibility do we have? The Germans have been going on about this since December. And bef- actually before, because when we when we went back into the Der Spiegel article and we looked at other stuff before, the Germans have been giving out about the procurement system for, for ages before. M- for many German journalists, this is just yet another case of, oops, Ursula's done it again. She is not the most highly esteemed or, or popular uh, politician in Germany, far from it. This is regarded as just another Ursula. They've been getting into the neck in France, they're getting it in the Netherlands, they've been getting it, the Italians have been going on about it. The remarkable thing was how little criticism there was in Ireland about this. In fact, it's ah, well, you know, there's a problem in supply, you know, something with Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and, you know, things happen. There'd been remarkably little commentary about it. But he then goes on to say this thing. It has been noted widely in Brussels and across the EU. Yeah, because across the EU, like the Greeks are constantly talking about this, that Ireland appears oblivious to the extraordinary solidarity that has shown to us over the border issue during Brexit negotiations. What extraordinary? I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me in words of no more than two syllables of what exactly they did. What was it they sacrificed? What would have been easier? What was the alternative for them? What did they do? What was this incredible solidarity? And I am willing, and I've said this to you, we were saying after before, I may genuinely just not have understood it. There may be a serious point here. We talked about this God knows how long when the Brexit negotiations were going on. I didn't get it. I have yet to get it. He says on a more parochial level, but actually, to me, it seems this whole article is broken. He, he's doing that thing there that it's only in Ireland. If this is happening, it's only happening in Ireland. As I was saying there, and you said as well, Gary, it's happening all over Europe. Nobody is going to regard this as being in any way a peculiar or particularly Irish thing when everybody in Europe is kicking up ruckuses about it. It's also either shockingly ill-informed or deliberately misrepresenting what would happen. Because the Article 16 thing, Michael, and that was the focus on it in Ireland, but that was also a wider thing, because if you remember, tied to that, were vaccine export restrictions. And that, in fact, had a global pushback against Europe. We were taking hits from everyone. I mean, even Canada was complaining. And Canada, Michael, is a country... Where one of their ambassadors once cried because someone said they didn't have high human rights standards. <laughs> the Canadians were livid about it. The Australians were livid about it. It was a big issue globally. But even, Gary, the article, the triggering of the articles, that was big news. I would say as big news, you know, bigger news in parts of in, in Europe. Not because they particularly cared about the specific issue of Northern Ireland, although they, they did believe it showed an incredible lack of awareness, information, and sensitivity at some levels within the Commission. But the way in which it was done, it was felt that's just not how it should have been done. They didn't follow the rules. They did not follow the protocols. And it wasn't necessarily the fact that it was this, which was an Irish issue, but rather that the Commission doesn't get to behave like this. And the, the Germans particularly are very sensitive about any kind of overreach 
when it comes to activities. The Germans had that. Um, the Germans had that overreach, but then they also had the fact that I remember when this happened. You and I, Michael, were saying that if we were involved with pharmaceutical companies, we'd be looking at our manufacturing process, and anything that's in the EU is now a problem because you could have manufacturing sites that are there and they manufacture part of it, but then it's going to be moved across, and the end product is going to be in America. And with these with these kind of controls, that could be immensely problematic. So you had all across Europe. Uh, pharmaceutical uh, and biofarm organizations reaching out and saying, what is happening here? Like, this could go very bad very quickly for us. And this just happened. This just randomly happened. And for Germany, this is a very big issue because the Germans have a very large and successful pharma center. The most successful and well-known of the vaccines so far is a half German, but also half American. It's Pfizer and uh, BioNTech. But of course, you know, it, what was noted during that absolute period of chaos, Michael, was Ireland. But then he, go, he goes on to say, and he, he's talking about um, why we shouldn't criticise them for the vaccine rollout, which is, well, for the vaccine acquisition, more so. And he says that, you know, the commission was undoubtedly slower than the UK to conclude contracts with the big pharmaceutical companies, Michael. But that was okay for two reasons. The main reason was that it sought to negotiate a reasonable price, and the second was to ensure that legal liability for any adverse vaccine reactions be accepted by the companies and not passed on to member states. Now that is an impressive paragraph, because it is bullshit at some sort of fractal level. But what he's saying is, is the first part is technically true, the second part is actually entirely wrong. The uh, the Italian state broadcaster was able to find the full unredacted AstraZeneca contract, Michael. Yes. And released it. And I've republished it on Gripped because I can. But here's what it says about, um, about uh, liability. The commission and each of the participating member states, each within their respective competencies on behalf of itself, waive and release any claim against AstraZeneca arising out of or relating to, and there's many things here, but the very first one, lack of safety or efficiency of the vaccine, subject to compliance by AstraZeneca with applicable EU regulatory requirements for a pandemic product. Collins is wrong. He's just flat out wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And on the price thing, as I think you and I, Michael, have made the point, the pandemic is costing so much. Like in Ireland, it's, it's over, I think it's 1.5 billion. It's the total cost of all the pandemic payments. Not what we're losing in the economy, but what we're paying out directly. We, the idea of a reason, there is no reasonable price. Anything we could pay to get it quicker was reasonable. And instead, we entered into this extended haggling phrase or phase when it didn't fucking matter. It did not matter at all. And if we, to, to go back to, to re-quote the, the, the statement made by Benjamin Netanyahu, he was asked about this a few weeks ago at a conference. He said, when this happened, I said to my, I said to my, my guy in charge, I said, listen, procurement, go and get it. Do not quibble about the price. I don't want to hear any crap about that. Just get it and get enough of it because I can guarantee you whatever it costs us now in 90 days will look cheap. And he was absolutely right. Now, Gary, just for clarity, um, he said, he, he said one of the things was to make sure that the what it wouldn't go the, the the liability does not go back to the member state. Could you just read that again? The main reason uh, to ensure that legal liability for any adverse vaccine reactions be accepted by the companies and not passed on to member states. When in fact it specifically says that I'm reading the Italian here. I don't have the document. The the entire category, the, the entire uh, burden of risks in case of side effects will be moved will be moved to member states except for those situations where uh, the a defect in the a defect in the vaccine came because AstraZeneca failed to observe the uh, regulatory uh, requirements of the EU and the EMA so it comes out on the member states explicitly that's what it says which it seems to me is the opposite. No, he's 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 clearly wrong. Uh, he's absolutely wrong. No, I mean it does make a note that if AstraZeneca doesn't comply with your good manufacturing policies, then they could be found liable. But in the general course of things, I mean, if the AstraZeneca vaccine is just harmful to people, if there's some horrible side effect that we haven't realised yet, 
No, no, we've we've accepted the liability for that. It's not AstraZeneca's fault. Because here they talk about the, 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 the correct practice of fabrication of manufacture. They're talking about the development, of whether the, the vaccine itself, as long as the, it's the, the, manif- the, 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 the norms, the regulations for manufacture are observed. No. And as for, the, as I said, the price thing is just... Also, this, AstraZeneca is selling this, they have said anyway, that when they were selling this, they were selling it pretty well. They were selling it at cost price to pretty well whoever. That was the prince. That was the basis on which they were operating, and it says, and that will continue. It's <laughs> sorry, I just like that. I don't know what it says in the in the in the in the in the, uh, in the, in the, the English version, but that it says that the it will be sold at an at a, at a, a non non for profit price, and that will continue until the uh, July the twenty twenty one. From that time onwards, the pharmaceutical company can by itself change prices unless it should believe and it gives it it's quoting here as well conscience in its according to its conscience that the pandemic is not finished i just love that it's like your handshake dealing kind of it is it's all it's all handshake dealing. but they, they but anyway my point is the astrazeneca has said that other than issues regarding fluctuations in currency prices and local costs that it what he was selling to the UK on the basis of on the basis of a non-profit also so I don't, I can't see that there's going to be some kind of massive price differential here one one thing that is interesting because people were saying that they thought the uh, the British had negotiated uh, just a stricter contract in general maybe not using best possible efforts but instead using um, something else and that may not be the case the New York Times I think was saying that they think the British contract is actually on roughly the same grounds but there is one provision in this contract that I would be very interested to see is in the British contract because what it does is it says that the Commission and the EU waive the right to uh, effectively sue AstraZeneca if there's delays Yeah. now that um, that whole you know the EU kind of coming out and going, we have a very strong case here. And, you know, this, we don't want to make this a legal issue. Now looks like, um, uh, to be fair, the contract also looks like AstraZeneca did legitimately overpromise what it could deliver. But it also kind of looks like the EU can't do anything about it. Yeah, what the Rye, the Rye version of it just says that the contract does not provide for penalties, for automatic penalties, uh in the case of failure to deliver. In the case of failure to deliver, the EU will be allowed instead to break the contract, which is you know, of wonderful usefulness to say, okay, well, we, we don't want it anymore because you've broken the contract. Well, it's, you know, wow, that's really useful in the middle of a pandemic. They could withhold payment effectively, or they could break the contract entirely. Uh, the problem kind of there, Michael, as a negotiating tactic, is AstraZeneca isn't making money from this. Yeah. So we won't pay you. Okay, we've lost nothing. We'll just sell it to someone else. Exactly. I mean, and that's what they, the plan for AstraZeneca always was going to be, that they would, their next move was to, to produce it in, and deliver it to the third world, as, again, at cost price. So it's not exactly a massive threat, is it? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd article. I, I don't know quite what the point of it was, but I thought it was just an odd article. I don't know. I've, I've seen... I think there may be a bit of panic setting in about this at a commission level over the last couple of weeks because I've seen things from people who are very involved in the EU and usually with the side institutions more than the actual main one, the sort of cultural cheerleaders of the EU. Not people who like the EU, but people who are sort of fanatical about the idea of the European project. And they're starting to get quite aggressive. They're, they're not disagreeing with people anymore. They're coming out and they're like, this is just sheer misinformation. Get you, you know, you're like, you're not actually disproving anything. You're just shouting at people. Well, they must be getting worried. When you have people like Claude Juncker coming out and being critical of the commission, that's remarkable. I mean, for Juncker to say something like that is remarkable. We talked before, a little while ago, about the article which was printed, uh, published in, in the Irish Times by a chap who works with uh, Wilfred Martins think tank, which is the think tank associated directly with the Popular Party, which is the Christian Democrats Party, the Fine Gael Party, in, in Europe, very, very far from being a Eurosceptic or a, or a Euro-hostile institution. 
And if you remember, Gary, that was coruscating about the failures of the Commission as regards the whole issues around uh, both procurement and the uh, triggering of Article 16. Was- I, I, did, I did know one point, one point in, in Colin's article that actually, and I'll, I'll put a link t- to this below for those who are interested in reading it, is that it mentioned that um, the criticism of the EU will might give rise to more Euroscepticism in Ireland. Which strikes me as a bit of a side point. Either what they did is worthy of criticism or not. And my personal view on this, and I know uh, we've had a couple of European politicians make the same point, is that not criticising the EU when it does something bad is only in the long term going to lead to more Euroscepticism because people are going to think that nothing they do is accountable. Yeah, it creates a sense of an institution which is, if it, which is beyond you, because if you can't criticise something and hope that that criticism in some way might move people towards change, to reform of institutions or change of legislation or change of regulation, that in some sense their opinion can be expressed and that can, and they can see that that opinion in some way filters down through the system and has an effect. If you don't have that, then people are completely detached from it. There is already a problem with Europe in the sense, the famous democratic deficit, the perception that this is something which is far away, which is detached, and which is not amenable to change or to criticism by ordinary people, that it's very far away from the street. If you if you don't criticise it and you don't engage in it and you don't appear to respond or react in some kind of humility, all you can do is exacerbate that sensibility. And that will create a genuine anti-EU or EU-sceptic uh, population with, with it, with throughout throughout the EU. And that, in Ireland, that doesn't exist to a great extent. In other EU countries, which we would think of as being historically pro-EU, places like Holland, places like Denmark, I, I don't know if you've been, <laughs> in Spain, you've seen some of the stuff that's been happening in the streets. I don't, I don't understand this notion that any kind of criticism, it's like they take it personally. It's like they have this, ter- this incredibly thin skin and that everything is some kind of a, is, a, is, a, is every criticism behind is actually, is, is just being done behind, and behind it is a, there's a veil and there's a plan which is actually disruptive and designed to undermine the EU. I, th- I think they do take it personally. I think a number of these people identify with EU as people would have traditionally with a nation state, um, so, you know, the European identity. And in the same way that, yeah, in the same way that people would get offended if you insulted their country, they're doing this. Although I would imagine many of them also think of themselves as being wonderfully post-nationalist. Well, yes, they do. And that's why they're so heavily invested in the notion of the EU and the idea that we need further integration, greater levels of cooperation, greater pooling of sovereignty, because it's all about pooling sovereignty, not not losing sovereignty. The way I would generally look at it is, is the people, is the person talking to me about this, are these people who, if the EU had done fantastically at the vaccine rollout, as I actually kind of thought it might, because it gave it a wonderful chance to show its worth and like a real yeah. win, and instead it just fucked it into the ground if it had gone fantastically would these people be coming out and saying well you know it's only one thing amongst many and you know we've got to average this out and you know you don't want to put too much focus on one thing or would be they be saying god isn't the eu the best thing to have ever happened and i i strongly suspect that would have been the line and it's not balanced it's just i like the eu yeah i like the eu and also i don't like the nation state are you implying that a former political editor of the Irish Times might have a problem with the nation-state, Michael? No, I'm, I'm saying that. I'm saying a former editor of the Irish Times might have a problem with the, the nation-state. I don't I don't even think that's defamation. I think it's opinion, and, and I don't even think it's necessarily bad opinion. I mean, I've never liked Stephen Collins ever since he uh, criticised Charlie I. <laughs> God, an elephantine memory there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's actually one of the few notable moments of uh, Stephen Collins's uh, career to me. And I would imagine to 
Actually, I wouldn't even say that's memorable to most people. Stephen Collins is gone. Where has he gone? Europe, probably. Yeah, so you can go there and, you know, go to, like, the European unions. What's it? The, the European University? EUI? It's the European University Institute. It's where uh, Bridget Laffin is. Ah. Yeah. Enough said. Right. All is clear. So, and just on um, one one final thing, one small, you know, uplifting note, because we want to end on a good note, Michael, because it's it's like having a meal in a restaurant. Uh, you know, people remember the dessert, so you always want to have a, a good dessert. Um, it appears that um, pubs and restaurants are going to go to the wall, and we were wondering what the unemployment rate might be, Michael. And I was, you know, it's 25% now. Can we get it to, you know, 35%, 40%? It looks like nearly all of the uh, restaurant sector will be uh, will be gone soon. So, you know, I, I think we can hit those numbers, Michael. I think we can get them where we want them to go. In the last few days, there has been a sense that, 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 that uh, the present administration does seem to be engaging in some kind of interesting thought experiment to see if they can get the cold country to get into a lemming-like state where they, if they give us enough bad news close together, where we all just find a cliff and just jump off and say, take me now, Lord. We had, no, to be fair, on one hand, you can criticize them for saying we're not going, and then for they're going to do things and it's going to be this and it's going to be bad. And then the other hand, you, people criticize them for saying, well, we want this to happen. And then when this, when, when, when the conditions are are not propitious, they say, well, actually, we're not going to be able to open up whatever it is, schools or pubs or restaurants. We're going to have to push it back. So they're caught whichever way they go. But maybe, maybe just say nothing. Maybe just leave people in a vague sense of hope that, well, you know, if we can, if the, if the numbers come down and the vaccines go out, maybe, rather than going, oh, no, no, you thought you were going to be up for a week weekend? No, it'll be July, lad. It'll be at least July before you're open, and then even then, I don't know. I was, I say, I think I was saying to you before. I had been talking to a, a few local restaurateurs here in the last couple of days who said uh, the hope had been that you know there might be a good season, we'd kick off at which some level of activity possible. That if there is some kind of movement, people can come down to say second homes or to caravans that it could be a bumper season because people aren't going to be going abroad. But now they're talking, if this is going to, if it's going to be well into July before we can open, well then, you know, it's just, there are people who had been given, you know, time on loans, you know, they've been given extensions or grace periods. Well, you know, you're looking into March and April uh, and those people who are on, say, 12-month graces, they're up and they're not going to be renegotiated. Overdrafts are becoming problematic. Costs, yeah, I think you could be seeing an incredible number of restaurants, good restaurants, thriving businesses previously going to the wall. And I don't know how you can stop that, Gary. I mean, effectively, I mean, as long as the the conditions for lockdown are in vigour, I don't see how you, can, how you can stop that unless you're going to make another choice that open up the checkbook again and just... Fire up more money, is maybe why not? Maybe that's the solution. It's an odd situation because in the normal course of things, I would not support any sort of bailout or industry action. But we are so far off the normal course of things that I don't know what is the most appropriate action. My concern here, in relation to state support, is that if we go down that route, by the time we get out of this, we will have a great deal of companies that are kept alive by that state support but are not functional anymore. They can't really hire people. They might have people on the books, but no one is doing anything. There's nothing there. And they're just going to suck up money and effort and people could go to something uh, better. But your problem is if you don't do that and you just have this wall of firms going bust at the same time, that's also pretty devastating. Yeah, and a successful business, and a lot of these are successful businesses had it not been for the pandemic, it, it's much harder to recreate a successful business than it is to, if you like, keep it on life support uh, in the hope that you can you can relaunch 
because um, it, it, it's it's about the concatenation of, of time circumstances it's about people and cap and skills coming together and it's about the location it's about so many things that have to come together and be right and to work that to try and recreate that when people will disperse I mean, if the business goes people will go and we saw that with the, one of the problems the building industry had in Ireland was because that after the great crash just so many tradesmen and so many young people involved in the in the business just either retrained and went off and got jobs doing other things and when building started to pick up again they were they, they had no interest in going back into building or if they gone to australia or canada or the uk or wherever and they weren't coming back so they had there were there were there were real bottlenecks in in crafts and trades and skills uh, so even if they had wanted to expand they found it difficult to expand quickly and that kind of you're going to see that kind of loss of skills i imagine here it's a small country so i mean other places presumably will pick up and maybe pick up more quickly we maybe we will have the famous v-shaped recovery i hope so after michael martin came out and said he didn't see pubs and restaurants opening again before midsummer uh, adrian cummins who's the ceo of the restaurants uh, association of ireland came out and said that um the comments by Michael Martin put restaurants and hospitality businesses closer to financial ruin and meltdown, which they didn't. If anything, I mean, the policies may do that, but the comments do not. And if anything, the comments by telling you that, look, do not expect an opening before this. So it may be better for you to close rather than taking on massive levels of debt on the assumption that, you know, in a month you'll be open. If anything, they would seem to help avoid that. There, it's it's unpleasant news, but it reduces uncertainty. Yeah. But uh, I would generally have a lot of time for comments. I was deeply disappointed to see him come out um, about the wet pubs last year. Or I, I hate the phrase wet pubs. Pubs, just pubs, Michael. They're pubs. Yeah, ordinary pubs. And say that they they should be shut. Uh, that didn't like it all. And maybe slightly more hesitant because it was very clear eventually he was have, going to have to come out and people were going to say you should shut the restaurants. And it was sort of a don't don't start calling for businesses to be closed because you're just going to help people calling for your own businesses to be closed. Yeah, your day will come. Yeah. And uh, but I, can, I would imagine he was under quite an enormous amount of pressure because if you are the head of the Restaurants Association right now and the industry is just collapsing below you. And I assume most of the businesses that are going to the wall were quite secure restaurants because restaurants have mar- like razor thin margins. I would expect most of the bad oh. ones have already shut. Not well, not the bad ones, but the like the least well performing and the most highly leveraged ones are gone already. Yeah. So this is we're probably going into like, quite substantially well run and profitable um Restaurants. It is a nightmarishly difficult business at the best of times. I have I knew a lot of people in the food business over, over the uh, in the over the years, and I long ago came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to be foolish enough to get into business myself and go into the business of food, what I would be opening was a fish and chip shop. Would not be a restaurant. Would not be fine dining. Maybe maybe a coffee shop where there was no coffee shop and there was a nice garden centre beside me, but. It is a really hard business to make money and to survive in. Most restaurants are dead within the first couple of years, first years. It, it, it's a hard, hard trade. Whoever's still in the business now, still chugging along, they're, they're doing the business right. Most, uh, the guys who weren't doing it right would, the first six months of this would have killed them. I imagine I But if you're, you're, you're it's just horrible. And, you know, it, it's important for us. I mean, we have a very significant tourist trade. <laughs> we will have, again, sometime, we hope, a significant tourist trade. And one of the reasons is that we actually, at the level of entertainment and hospitality, we do things quite well, a hell of a lot better than they did when I was a kid. I mean, the, the improvements in, pub, in pubs, in pub food and in restaurants has been massive since the 90s. And the quality, generally speaking, is pretty high. It's pretty good. I mean, at an international level, I would say. Uh, but leaving aside the simple fact that the numbers of people that, again, this is just going to throw on to the unemployment numbers and what that's going to do to the current account deficit is just going to be horrendous anyway. 
But we are stuck in that place, aren't we, Gary, where there are no good options? It's it's difficult to tell what way to do this. And I know you've started to see kind of an increased popularity of some of the zero COVID sort of stuff. My problem there is that I have yet to see someone come out with a plan as opposed to a list of aspirations that actually says, this is how we'll do it and this is how it will work. And we're not just going to assume that we can get these things, these very specific combination of things, which if we don't get, the plan will just go to absolute pieces because when we reopen, if the virus gets back in, because that's the the draw of it, that you get back to a normal life within much stricter borders, if you can't control the internal transmission, it'll just spread like wildfire. And I've yet to see the plan that says, this is how we do it, and this is how long it will take, and all of these things are exactly how it'll go out. I've seen very, very educated people who assume it will work and seem pretty certain it will. But yet when you question them, not uh, there's never a, a plan. There's never an actual document. Yeah. You remember we, well, I did a, an interview with a, a representative from the Zero Covid people. Nice guy, right? And he, he was very straightforward and honest in what he said. But as I, I think I, 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 I said to him at the time, I said afterwards, Problem. I know a number of problems with it, but it's a bit like you know those Keynesian economic models, where at the bottom on the footnotes it's number one, two, three, four, five. This assumes X, and this assumes Y, and this assumes Z. And the problem is, if you don't get all of those things, like it, it assumes a level of competency at the level of administration, politically and in the permanent government. It would assume a level of compliance within the pop- the population at beyond you know stratospheric levels far beyond the kind of compliance i think that we're seeing now even in the lockdown that we're experiencing and i i think the problem is that you, they make these assumptions and if if all of these things came together it's like one of those keynesian graphs and those magical mathematical models if all of those things worked well then yeah it could work the problem is i i, I it's very hard for me to imagine a world where all of these things will work perfectly and at the same time. If they could put it together and they could get it into an actual package, you could make the argument for it that it would actually lessen lockdown substantially. But you actually need to be able to show that and that doing so is actually good and it won't bankrupt the country and not just... Will we try, it, it, it's, it strikes me as the inverse of some of the more conspiratorial... Um, you know, COVID isn't real kind of thing. That yeah. there's a sort of hope, a sort of belief that they are absolutely right. Everyone else is wrong. The stats that support them are perfect. The ones that don't are, you know, maybe they're incomplete, yes. they're incorrect, but they're not as compelling as the others. And if we just do this, it'll work out. And there, there's a certainty there. I don't think they've done the work internally to actually stand over. I think they've got a hunch. And they might be right. I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying they can't prove they're right. There's a kind of almost naive belief that if they could only get the people to listen and to understand correctly what they're saying, then everybody would come on board and everybody would be happy to endure the conditions that would pertain and that we would have 95 plus percent compliance or whatever the level of compliance was necessary. And it would work. I am less sanguine about the capacity for anybody to explain anything to the population that you're going to get that level of agreement and compliance with them about any plan, let alone this. So also, they don't have an economist much, it seems to me. I I don't seem to see many economists coming out talking about it. So there are no numbers attached to this. What's this going to cost? What's, what's, What's the effect going to be on businesses? Because... I imagine, Gary, I haven't seen a decent plan, so I don't know, but I imagine that if if what we're having now is not enough, then zero COVID is going to be a lot more than what we're having. So we're going to have to close down a lot more economic activity than is currently happening. But what's the effect of that going to be? And what are the long-term effects of these going to be? If anyone hasn't uh, seen it, I did, Gripped got leaked a load of the internal documents of ISAG, the zero covid advisory uh group or advocacy group and uh we put up the first story there and i'll include a link to the bottom of it 
But we also got tons of their internal emails and their, their um, draft documents. And I, I don't think they know. I, don't, I, don't, I think they have a hunch, Michael. And they're smart people and they're educated people. So they might be right. But they can't prove they're right. I, they do not have the documentation and planning required to show they're right. And they are asking for a great deal of trust and very extreme things in some cases. And it strikes me, Michael, if you care that much and if this is something you deeply believe in and that it will do all these great things and it will save all these lives and it will save the economy. If you don't bother to come up with a plan, particularly if you, as I said, this is a group of educated, uh, smart people, they could absolutely have come up with one. They didn't, which makes me think that uh, either this is incredibly difficult or they don't know. They don't know what they would have to do. Conversation that we should be having. I hate that. You know, we should have a conversation, but we need to have a. We should be to work out what it is we're going to do. <laughs> no matter what we've been saying in the last couple of weeks, we are going to eventually reach a point, Gary, where you're going to see a substantial number of the population is going to be vaccinated. We're going to see the point where everybody over the age of 65, for example, has been vaccinated. And that at that stage, probably you'll also see a lot of people who are suffering from the kinds of underlying conditions that make them particularly vulnerable are going to be vaccinated. Now, at that, we're going to reach a stage where that would hopefully mean, I mean, this seems to be what's happening in, in Israel. It's starting to happen. The number of deaths that are, are occurring will dramatically decrease because it is very connected to both age and to a couple of underlying uh, conditions. I think more obesity, probably after age, is the biggest predictor. We're going to see a, a dramatic uh, decrease in the number of people requiring hospitalization. So you would expect that the pressure and the fear that we have understandably had about this health system being overrun and the ICUs being overrun is going to recede. I think rather than wait and then have a kind of a flurry thing, I think now is the time when the government should start to have a conversation with people amongst themselves. So they should have this worked out before they come to us, but, and then start to talk to the people and say, to manage expectations, there should be, I believe, some, there, when that starts to occur, there, there needs to be a change in the policy and the management. But, it may not be to the extent that I would like to see, or maybe more. I don't. We don't know. But they need they need to start talking about it now to start to manage people's expectations, because otherwise, I think we're not going to find ourselves in the middle of it of another kind of a shitstorm like 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 this. And it's not going to be possible to. You're going to have people announcing plans and changing them and going back and going forward, and there's going to be the same level of confusion, and people are going to lack faith and compliance. You've got to start to fray and fall apart because people may say, well, oh, fuck it. Come on. I'm vaccinated. You're vaccinated. Nobody's dying from it anymore. Let's just get on with it. So I think if we're, we have not been very good at anticipating situations up to now. And it's not just here. That's been in a lot of other countries in the world. I think now would be a good time to start considering what the next phase is going to look like. The post-lockdown phase, the post-significant levels of vaccination. We're talking about a million people vaccinated in the month of May, is that right? Or June? They're saying they want to by, by June. So at that stage, you're going to start to see the beginnings by, on, that, on those levels of vaccination. You're going to start to see some changes occur. I think we should start to manage those expectations now rather than wait for it and say, oh, sure, we'll do it when it happens. There's been far too much of that. Michael, just on the, on, we're, talking, we're talking about plans, um, whether or not ISAG has plans. If you go to ISAG's website, key reports from the group, the very first one, a path to normality, ISAG's strategy to rid Ireland of COVID-19. You, uh, you go on to it and you realise when you look at the first point, continue with current restrictions, capitalising on the fact that schools will be closed over the holiday period. That this hasn't mm -hmm. been updated since uh, before December. Now, the reason that that matters more is the introduction of the B117 strain, which has massively increased transmissibility and appears to make people infectious for longer. 
Okay. So Tomas Ryan, who is the, the one of the founders of ISAG, has himself written that no country has so far managed to, uh, I'm not sure I have the exact word, to contain or to deal with uh, the B117 strain once it's become prevalent. That strain is now 90% of all new Irish cases. So we have right. a document here from before that, which is effectively dealing, for all intents and purposes, with a different disease. And they haven't bothered to update it. Yeah. Like, it doesn't give you, like, a, these are people on the ball. Like, as I said, they could be right. But if they're right and they're that convinced that they're important, why aren't they putting some effort in to doing stuff that isn't webinars and meeting politicians? Oh, well, I suppose they have day jobs to do and they're probably busy. They do. Almost all of them work for the state or for universities. We shall wait with uh, anticipation to see if they are going to roll out a new plan. And when they do, we should read it and be... We should read it with interest anyway, if nothing else. However, unless we have any other... And we'll have more leaks from the ISAG archives over the uh, coming week or two. (laughs) He says that with confidence. Anyway, Gary... I suppose we shall be back on Wednesday. Uh, But until then, mind yourselves and enjoy what's left of your Sunday. Only three more shows before uh, March. If days and months have any meaning to you anymore. Yeah, we're all looking forward to St. Patrick's Day. Cheltenham will be on the telly. There's something. Anyway, mind yourselves. All the best.